So friends of the Rockney cast, you are in for a real treat. I am here in Decorah, Iowa with my good friend and former professor, Richard Simon Hansen. For those of you who grew up in Decorah or went to Luther College, I think you will probably share my opinion that some of my best memories at Luther College were sitting in Main Hall listening to Simon Hansen lecture about the Bible, the stories, the power, the passion, the intrigue, the Psalms. He also taught Judaism, which was also one of my best courses that I took at Luther. Um, uh, my name was Asher Lev, was a, was a book that I remember. Um, Eli Wiesel, um, we covered his work and his philosophies and his experiences in the concentration camps. Um, just an incredible dynamic professor. But he wasn't only that. He's a man who served. He, I, I also remember him, we would do at First Lutheran Church, the Seder Supper, where he was able to reintroduce some of these wonderful Jewish traditions and remind we Christians sort of what the Old Testament was all about. And uh, so it's just a distinct pleasure that we get the opportunity to talk um, with basically a Luther College legend, Simon Hansen. Um, so we're here in, in his home in Decorah, Iowa, and so we'll allow him to have the floor. So Simon Hansen, thank you so much for participating okay. in this interview. Now, I am wearing a shirt that honors the little high school I graduated from up in Baldwin, Wisconsin. This shirt was designed 20 years ago for a reunion. But it was the biggest little town in Wisconsin. That's where I fell in love with music and decided I wanted to go somewhere to study music. But I was also, believe it or not, a very aggressive football player. I did not know that. And I played right guard. <laughs> and I wasn't very big, you see. And so my trick was to get through that line right away and if, if possible, grab the ball out of the hand of the... Quarterback. <laughs> right guard, I love it. Yeah, and you know, so I had a lot of fun celebrating that egotistical part of my life. <laughs> we all start out as one kind of egotist or another. We, we certainly do. And, okay, now I'm going to uh, uh, move along to something a little different. I came to Luther College... And I thought I had enough money. I had a scholarship of $500. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And uh, by, uh, by March, middle of March, I had run out of money. So I thought, how am I going to get by? And I decided if I'd have to spend $2 a week on my food. So... It really is a good lesson to learn to really be hungry. <laughs> I would go down to the bakery where they would give me all the <laughs> leftover bread I wanted. Yes. Free. Then I would, go, uh, I would buy a quart of orange juice. And I would buy a pound of smoked herring. That's good That's for you. all I ate for, I suppose, nearly two months. I still like all three of those things. <laughs> That's a good good Norwegian. That's your, your background, is it not? Well, and you know, when you are really hungry, you really appreciate food. <laughs> that That is certainly true. And you'd mentioned you're from Baldwin, Wisconsin. Yeah. Is that a, 
area with a high amount of Norwegians. Where Where is Baldwin, and how the heck did you well, get to Luther College? Well, I went to Luther College because I was very interested in music. Of course. And I had a very good uh, uh, music uh, director there at the college, and and he suggested that one of the, he suggested two places the University of Wisconsin or Luther College because of the Luther College concert band with Carlos Sparati was he still there or was he there no, he wasn't there yet okay but i played the role of carlos sparati twice okay oh you homecoming. did homecoming <laughs> he was a really good test <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you came for band what 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 did you actually play well i i i, play, I in in college i played the trumpet and the tuba okay. or the sousaphone it was that kind and i remember i would always perform at these contests and uh, i had prepared a a piece uh, on the sousaphone mm-hmm. and then also on the trumpet yeah and uh, the first the, uh, i was auditioned for, first by a guy who uh, heard me do the trumpet, and he said, you know, I think you're on the wrong instrument. I think you need an instrument. I got a high rating, but I think you need an instrument with a bigger mouthpiece. Hmm. Half an hour later, I appeared before him playing this tuba. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and so that's how you got to Luther College. What what years were you actually there? Uh, I started, I, I was in the class of 53 in high school. Is that it? Yeah. 53 in high No, that's a class of... I was a class of uh, 49 in high school. Okay. And then I I, 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 had to leave Luther after one year because I couldn't get enough money to come back. Oh, really? Okay. So I transferred to Augsburg College in, in uh, uh, Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And there I had to... I could afford the tuition, but I had to pay for my room and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I took a night job and worked at night from 11 o'clock till 7 in the morning. Up on Washington Avenue, we were making our refrigerators for public dispension. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I would come back to class after uh, no sleep for all night. And finally, I just broke down. I just crashed. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So I had to transfer to being a laborer. And I still remember the place where I worked. It was a. Oh, we were bucking rivets, making Alumacraft bolts, mm. and they didn't even provide earplugs. Wow! It was. It was just a terrible existence. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then, uh, one of our professors at Luther, uh, Frost, Gerhard Frost, had been following me, and he got me to come back early, and the first thing I did was go on tour with the concert band. So he got you back from Augsburg to Luther. Yes, but I had, I was one month into the next semester by that time. Okay. But he got me back. And uh, via letter, did he just give you a call, or what? What happened? I think he gave me a call and a visit. Okay. Just, yeah. Anyway, he got me back, and so that's how I ended up being at Luther again. But uh, 
And I had Weston Noble. I was going to say, he would have been a young professor there at that uh, point. Yeah, Tell I me took... any memories of Weston during that time oh, period. Oh, yes. One what was Weston courses... like in the early 50s? Well, <laughs> he hadn't finished his education yet, and his, his directing style hadn't evolved into what it became later. Yes. Which is really remarkable. Yeah. But uh, he had, he told us a story uh, on... Told us a story of how he got into the army. Yes, he was from Rice Lake, Wisconsin. Yep, and he wasn't large, and he could drive a tractor. So they made him a tank driver. Yep, and he saw pretty heavy combat, I think, in the Battle of the Bulge. Did he? Well, not? he had. Yeah, he was in Patton's famous army, but yeah, he uh, he learned something very interesting. The German tanks were much bigger. Yeah, and powerful. But they could only turn halfway. Yeah. Whereas the American turret could turn the full way. Wow. And they used that to advantage. And he told us horrendous stories about uh, there was a break in the fighting, and uh, he with another guy uh, took a walk and didn't realize they were behind the German lines. Wow. And twice they had to be hidden by farm people. Oh, wow. Anyway, I won't tell him more about that. Anyway, he kept us. Uh, very much aware of what the war was like. No, I, I love that, though, because I, I think I'm going to do a separate podcast on Weston at the Battle of the Bulge. And at some point, I'd really He like, wasn't in the Battle of the he Bulge. He wasn't in the Battle of the Bulge. Okay. He, it was right after it. Oh, okay. And the weather had cleared up a bit. Okay, so he wasn't in the actual Battle of the Bulge, but he was just afterwards. Yeah. But he, he was in the tank battalions. Yeah. Um, but you So you actually interacted with Weston in the early 50s. Yeah. And do you have any anecdotes of Weston just at that particular time period? Well, I do. Okay. Now, when I was a senior at Luther, yes. I auditioned for the tenor section of the Nordic Choir. Oh. And in the meantime, the director of this organization quit. And so they appointed me director. Wow. Of Scola Cantorum. This is me here. And the only other person who had been appointed director of a student choir before was Weston Noble. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and so you were director of the Scola Cantorum. The last director of the Scola Cantorum. Oh, and it was, was it like a Renaissance type music or... Well, we, we played a variety of things. Okay. But we played up at the place where Luther College started, up in Alaska, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. And I got a job offer in music. <laughs> well, yeah. But I, had a, I, I re-auditioned, and I had some terrific singers. And uh, my first tenor, Harley Swiggum is in there somewhere. Anyway, he he became known for the Bethel Bible series, which I didn't like very much. Huh. Anyway. Did, did you make the Nordic Choir? Well, I made it, but then I dropped out because they offered me oh. this position. Okay. And I thought I was going to learn a whole lot more that way. Exactly. To do, learn by doing. Exactly. That's right. So that I got to be that. Now, so, so you graduated in 1953. Yeah. And you developed this interest in ancient religions or Semitic well, languages. Uh, How did you went, get to Harvard? Well, I uh, no, I, I went. I I was. I I thought first of trying to get 
training in in uh, in choral direct uh, in choral directing. Okay. But there was no way I could work it, so I went instead to the seminary. And my training and skills in directing were a way to earn money there. Yes. I finally earned more money than I needed <laughs> directing choirs. Wow. And I did this for years. In fact, when I was on my internship, which was in International Falls, Wisconsin, that mm -hmm. was a real adventure, mm -hmm. I uh, founded, they asked me to come, and the Canadians asked me to come and direct, I had a reputation as a director at the church where I served. Mm -hmm. They asked me to come up and, and uh, direct a performance of Handel's Messiah. And I said, only if you include the Americans. Whoa. So we had the first international Canadian-American orchestra and choir. Wow. And I picked up some real gems. A, a doctor who was good on the violin uh, would drive up. We, I would rehearse every Sunday afternoon for four straight hours. Hmm. First the chorus and then the, then the orchestra. And it wasn't terrific, but it, it left an impression. I, th I think they carried on with that for years and years afterwards. Well, one of the things that I think Weston so effectively did, you know, there were other choral directors that were greater technical mastery yeah. of, of, of the work. But this whole concept of he always talked about as the emotion or the affective. Yeah. And to really be touched by the spirit of sort of the transcendent creator and to really channel that and not fight against that. And you talked about as you grew, you know, when we're young, we have a lot of ego. I think as we get older, we sort of give counsel to our fears a lot of time. And, yeah. you know, Weston was just all about, no, let go of those fears. Get in you touch with your emotion. Where? A summer with Dale Warland. I didn't know that. Dale Warland Singers. Okay. Changed his, you know, it, it, you, he used to be pretty much straight like yes. you would. No, he was this. Yes. Floating, you know. Yeah. That, it was Dale Warland who, who showed him. I didn't know that because, you know, I would always joke. Young choral directors would try to study Weston. Yeah. And I was saying, you know, guys, people aren't really, you know, I think in terms of uh, choral director, moving your little pinky yeah. <laughs> or moving your index finger as you like pray to God, that, that's sort of unorthodox. But, but during rehearsals, he would be very standard. So yeah. we'd get the technical mastery down. But during the, the, the concerts, it was all emotion. And I think that that is sort of a good sort of concept of life to sort of like get, let go and to channel your inner well, power. Yeah, and you, uh, and, uh, my daughter was in the choir for a while, but she didn't like all this hand-holding. Yeah, oh yeah. But that was part of his technique. Yes. And uh, no one will ever know why. Yeah. But there were two people on campus, well, Br Bruce Reitzman to a certain degree because yeah. of his son. Yeah. Who uh, gained the confidence of all the gay men in the community. Wow. And uh, uh, I, I, when I first encountered a person who I decided was gay, and I yeah. was right. Yeah. In fact, I, I was teaching Hebrew, and yeah, and uh, one of the girls developed a crush on him, Bill Musser. Yeah. And uh, she, the kids would come in and tell me all kinds of things. Yeah. She said, "I don't understand it." 
I I really would like to have a date with Bill Musser. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, maybe he can't. Yeah. Oh. And she came back a while, a week later or so, and said, you're right, he can't. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's good. <laughs> well, anyway, I developed this reputation, and one day I had a phone call from up at Bluffton. And a man said, there are three of us out here, and uh, we're all farmers, but we want to know if there's some church we can join or go to in Decorah. Mm-hmm. How about the Episcopalians? I thought you couldn't have picked a worse extent. Yeah. I said, I'm sorry to say no. <laughs> well, anyway, I had developed quite a few uh, relationships with gay people. Yeah. And uh, then I had done a ceremony for Bruce Reitzman's son. Yes. He didn't call it a wedding. That was illegal. Yeah. But a uh, uh, a commitment ceremony. Yeah. And it, the word went around, and uh, President Farble says, you're going to have to meet with the local ministers. They all want an explanation. Wow. Well, this guy who uh, who had left here got found a congregation down in Florida, and he kept in touch with me. Mm-hmm. And how wonderful it was that here were people who would accept him. And I had these letters. Wow. So I met in a room with these pastors who were really, really uh, upset. Yeah. There must have been 18 or 20 of them. And I said, I'm going to read you some letters. Wow. That I receive on a regular basis from a young man down in Florida. Wow. He's gay. He knows I'm not gay, but... By the time I was done reading those, some of those men were weeping. Oh, wow. There were no more questions. Wow. You know what I love, too, about your knowledge base is, you, you know, so so many, so much of our religion, I'm, I self-identify as a Lutheran Christian, but there's all these arguments about the meaning of the text and what the true meaning was and what it's not. Yeah. And for you to have that background, to actually know what... Probably the original Greek, the original well, Hebrew. Yeah, there was. Uh, it's interesting in terms of what the Bible did and didn't say about a topic as controversial. It's not now controversial, but at the time it was. And in some quarters, it does remain in certain religious circles. It still is. But for you oh. to actually have that knowledge as to what was actually said, what Christ would have done, and, and if we look at you know these sorts of topics, it's it's nice to have that knowledge base where you can say, well, look, I have the credentials to. to sort of say what what the Bible actually says about these topics. Yeah. You know this great painting of the Last Supper? Yes. Is it uh, uh, not Michelangelo? I think it is. Isn't it Michelangelo? I think it is, yeah. Yeah. Maybe Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci. I'm sorry. Okay. Leonardo da Vinci made that picture based on a very interesting line in the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John is a second-century production. Yes. And they talk about the disciple whom Jesus loved. Wow. And it was decided that that disciple was John. Wow. Now, in this Last Supper, 
to Jesus' right and our left yeah. is the Apostle John. Yeah. Wow. As his partner. Wow. I love it. <laughs> and the others are all arguing on the other side, but that was very deliberate. Yeah. And, you know, so there was a recognition yes. that he was possibly gay. Yeah. Huh. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 18th verse, uh, there's, a, there's a discussion about... Um, uh, eunuchs. Yeah. Now, a eunuch means a bedkeeper. Mm-hmm. And a person who had been, gone through the castration process, of course, was a safe bedkeeper in the harem. Yes. But there were others who were safe. Huh. And Jesus explains that not all who are made eunuchs by men are eunuchs. Wow. There are different wow. kinds of eunuchs. I love it. I and love it. that that got into print somehow. And uh, I had a, a niece by marriage yeah. who was going to the... Uh, University of Minnesota campus up in Duluth. Mm -hmm. And when they got to that topic, they quoted this professor from Luther College without my permission. Oh, no. (laughs) Did you get in trouble? (laughs) No. My relatives thought this was just great. (laughs) Got you some cred. No, but, but what I love about that, too, is when you think about what is new and what is false and, and what, what we think we know about things, you know, I, you know, I think Engels did a, um, for some reason he felt it necessary to get into the history of marriage uh-huh. and something that, that we think of as just sort of universal and ancient as marriage. Whoa. He takes us back through all these different iterations of, of what marriage was and wasn't over time. Well, my favorite is, it's in Southeast Asia, I can't remember which country, where uh, a woman can marry, can be married to more than one brother of her, uh, of her husband. Mm-hmm. A- at least two. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the custom. Yes. And you keep it in the family that way, you see. Yeah, and, and that was in what religious tradition? Uh, in Southeast Asia, Southeast I can't Asia, which one yeah, exactly, sure. yeah. But even in our own Western, there's this evolution of these ideas that I think is very interesting, and I think that gets back to your comment. You are known as a biblical scholar. You did teach the Bible. How did you get this interest in ancient religions? Because didn't you go to Harvard at some point and you okay. got your PhD? So how how did you actually get right. make that uh, leap? I I went to the seminary at in St. Paul. Yes. And one of the courses I took was from John Halverson, who taught a course in Hebrew. Yes. Obviously, from the assumption that nobody would want to learn it. I thought, just a minute. So when I went on my internship, I took a German grammar of the Hebrew Bible by Hebrocklinen. Mm-hmm. And I worked through it, because I had a lot of time on my hands and in my internship. Mm-hmm. And A, I really learned the way that German scholars understood Hebrew, but B, I also knew that they were wrong about two very important things. <laughs> so I came back to the seminary and they hired me to correct papers. 
Wow. And then I decided to stay on, because in those days you got a Bachelor of Theology, and I wanted a Master of Theology, which I could work out between the University of Minnesota and uh, Luther Seminary. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the teachers asked me to uh, teach his class in Hebrew Mm -hmm. using his textbook. Mm -hmm. He wanted to try it out, because they knew that I knew Hebrew very, very well. yes. And uh, so I dutifully did that. But in the process, I also realized he didn't understand either. Wow. Now, what's the, what's the genius of the Hebrew language? There is no tense, past, present, future yeah. at all. It's all right now. There are two kinds of ways of talking. One is uh, uh, you... Bring person back to where the story happened and it's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's the storyteller's language. Mm -hmm. It's happening now. You and we do this and you know, when we're gonna when untrained people are gonna tell a story, they take you back there. Yes. So it's happening. And then they can they have another word when you it happens once, but it can be tomorrow. Now or yesterday. Hmm. But there's just a little switch in the way you talk. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's a totally different language. It's, it's a language for storytellers and poets. Wow. And isn't, it, isn't the modern Hebrew the exact same as the ancient Hebrew? No. Oh, that's not true. Okay. Definitely not true. Okay. You have to learn to think like you're a European and try to... Sp- I thought the Israel. I, I could be wrong. I, I don't know anything about it. You know, no, it's just, I can't stand modern Hebrew. And I had to spend a little <laughs> too much time as an archaeologist over there. Yeah. Uh, trying to understand these people. I remember one really disgusting, it got me in trouble. I was, I, we had a, I was going to take a trip with the family for the weekend. Yeah. So I went to a, to uh, rent a car. Mm-hmm. They had Volkswagens. And there was a lady uh, in charge, and she was also on the phone with somebody else, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, she explained to me uh, the trunk of the car, and she said, Yes, Pancho. Pancho. Mm-hmm. And then she explained that I should go down to the filling station and, and do something. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought, oh, to get some fuel. Puncture was their word for puncture. Oh, puncture. Huh. <laughs> That's interesting. I had an adventure after that that the family will never forget. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> because I had to hitchhike with a flat tire to uh, to uh, the lower city of, of uh, Nazareth. Yes. Where the Christians were still open because the Shabbat had started. So. Oh, okay. And so I had to hitchhike with this <laughs> this wheel and a tire to get back. And on the way back, uh, uh, I was picked up by somebody who was giving a uh, an Israeli soldier a ride. Wow. Because the soldiers just stand in front of the car. You have to give them a ride. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and we got back. We got back. And then I, t- we, you know. Yeah. We, uh, we, and all we had to do was the Volkswagen is so light, was just pick the car up and hold it while we oh, wow. put That's it funny. back on. So you have this interest, though, in the Semitic language at the Lutheran Seminary. 
How, how do you get from the Lutheran Seminary in St. Paul to Harvard? Okay, uh, when I had finished my master's degree at the seminary, they uh, decided they wanted me back on their faculty. But to do that, this is uh, Lutheran-style dirty politics. Hmm. I had to be ordained. Okay. So I was ordained as a associate pastor. I also had two other jobs at two other Lutheran seminaries because they, uh, well, one guy had a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. So I was doing uh, three jobs mm-hmm. and also being the you know, the assistant pastor there at St. Timothy Lutheran Church. (laughs) And so I I got ordained on this basis. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's a kosher way to be ordained, but I got ordained that way. Yeah, so you're ordained, though. It counts. And so that's how uh, they, uh, well, I I took the, uh, the, uh, Test for the what is it? You have to for graduate school. GRE. Yeah. Yeah. The GRE, and uh, I, I had a lot of guessing in mathematics. Yeah. And I, I passed, with flying colors. Yeah. Well, then I had to choose between, uh, the school, uh, Lutheran School of Theology down in, in uh, Illinois. Yeah. In Chicago. But they had such a rigid course that I Mm. chose Harvard instead. Hmm. So that's how I got to Harvard. And then at Harvard, your specialty was Semitic languages, was it not? It was was ancient Near Eastern studies, which wasn't in the field school of religion. Yes. And uh, Wilford Bunge also graduated there, but he graduated the school of religion, and he didn't understand the difference. Yeah. And uh, I would point, you know, you're... Your little medallion is red. Mine is blue. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, yeah, you got the Harvard PhD and in the Eastern Studies. And so what was your specialty? What was your, what was your dissertation on? Well, my dissertation was uh, in the field of uh, paleography, learning to date... Uh, ancient scripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls. I became the 11th member of the Dead Sea Scrolls team. Wow. Because the guy who was supposed to do it didn't have the skill to do it. He was at the University of Michigan, the very same school where where, uh, Pip Wally got his degree. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I I, I, uh, was a specialist in really ancient history. Mm -hmm. And I still have... The uh, I made a histo map that I memorized, and every hmm. morning for a month I would recite it. Wow. It took me an hour to recite it. Wow! And I came in to do uh, the exam, and I had one question and three hours to answer. The question was: Explain the third dynasty of war. Well. I enlisted all the rulers in Ur, the, the first dynasty, second dynasty, third dynasty by yeah. name, and uh, and uh, handed it in. Yeah. 
Well, one of the people there was a visiting scholar from University of Chicago. I'll think of his name because Jakob Thorkild Jakobsen. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason his father had been the uh, had been the uh, librarian at Luther College, hmm. and it was the library, and he helped develop the the uh, the um, Library of Congress system, which is still the, the system at Luther College Library. Wow, it's a totally different system than the old. Uh, whatever it was called. Dewey Decimal. What's that? The Dewey Decimal system? Yeah. Yeah. It had not, not yeah, it was not. So I I got the job because this other guy couldn't do it. But now here's a scrolls. little bit of humor because the text that I got was the text of Leviticus. Well, from the scrolls. Uh-huh. Wow. And uh, it uh, I could even get you a copy of it. Hmm. I've got it upstairs. Wow. Want me to get it? Sure. Let's take a look at it. All right. This is very dramatic. Oh, wow. This is going to be awesome. Leviticus couldn't do it. Hmm. So I was doing archaeology in Israel, and he came up and got me and asked me if I would take over... Just a minute now. There should be a fold out here somewhere. So while you're looking for that, um, and maybe you could just briefly describe the Dead Sea. I know that the Dead Sea Scrolls were this recovered religious document, some of the earliest texts of the Bible, is my understanding. Could you give our listeners just a little bit of background about the Dead the Dead Sea Scrolls, what they are, and uh, why they're important? I know you could probably have a I think I got the semester long class on that. But what what actually are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Did you need to actually when uh, when the uh, Romans were taking care of the Jewish problem, uh, and uh, they were trying to eliminate all the Jewish people, mm-hmm. they uh, would be about the year seventy. Yeah. They decided that those monks down there by the Dead Sea were dangerous. Hmm. So at that point, these guys hid the scrolls in the caves. Wow. And uh, they were later discovered by Bedouin, a Bedouin uh, uh, goat keeper. Wow. I got the wrong one. Can I go back? Yeah, and get certainly. That? Yes, no, exactly. In fact, I'm just going to. The wrong book out. And 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 what we're gonna our listeners are gonna get is is a Dead Sea Scroll of Leviticus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So instead of pressing the pause button, I'm just gonna comment a little bit here. Um, this is this is why I really have loved learning from Professor Richard Simon Hansen. He is just such a Renaissance man. He knows the history, the ancients, the Semitic languages. He's such a wonderful scholar of Judaism, different religious practices. Um, I, I think you just heard some incredible um, interpretations of um, Jesus and um, his views on homosexuality by someone who knows. And, you know, um, when you talk about knowledge of the Bible, there are very few people 
that know as much about the Bible as Richard Simon Hansen. He has studied it his whole life and was one of the select team of scholars to study the Dead Sea Scrolls and to help interpret what they mean and some of the original ancient Hebrew. How cool is that? And what we're waiting for is I think he's going to try to get one of the um, original texts and he's going to try to share it with our listeners. So this is what it is like um, living the life of Simon Hansen. I mean, he is a true scholar and I think he is a treasure um, both for the Luther College community, but also for the Decorah community. So we are gonna, we're waiting for him, and I think we are going to press the pause button here while we wait for him. But wow, this is so awesome. I cannot wait to see what he has in store for us. This is the kind of thing I was working with. So right now, we, we didn't get the exact text that we were looking for, but um, Simon Hansen worked on the work book of Leviticus, the, the shreds that were recovered from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And right now he recovered a book relating to the Dead Sea Scrolls that he's going to share a relevant portion of that with now, us. Now, I'll tell you a funny story. Way back when I was a serious little Christian <laughs> in Sunday school, I agreed to a, 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 a promise to read the whole Bible in a year's time. This would be one chapter of the New Testament in the morning and three chapters of the Old Testament in the evening. Very wholesome. Well, too wholesome. <laughs> if you've ever tried reading the book of Leviticus, it's very, very boring <laughs> until you get to the 18th chapter. Well, the part of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was buried only went through chapter 17. Oh, wow. So you got the boring part, huh? So I thought <clears throat> this was my penalty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I had to demonstrate, uh, you know, how to date it by the style of the script and so forth. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I established was that an old scribe would would use the style of script of his day, yeah. the young scribe might change it a little bit. Yeah. And so I demonstrated how this could evolve. And I said, but it's, you know, you could have old and young scribes there together. Yeah. Anyway, that's the, that's the kind of thing I did, uh, the dating of the scrolls. And, and did you get involved in any of the actual interpretation or translation of the text, ensuring that it was an That accurate... was our job. Okay. The scholar's job. Okay. But were you, you were involved directly in that as well. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, it you know it's how close is it to the texts that we have preserved over the many 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 years? You know. And were there any revelations in the Dead Sea Scrolls that changed our interpretation? No. Okay. So it was pretty <laughs> much the Bible we have is the Bible that they had. Yeah. It, well, see the Jewish Bible is in three parts. The first part is called the Torah. Yep. That was put together by a guy named Ezra in the, about 500 B.C. Ezra is called the scribe. No, Ezra is this tradition expert. Yeah. That's the first five books of Scripture. Mm -hmm. A couple hundred years later, another group of scholars preserved the ones that are called the prophets. Mm -hmm. And that starts with Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, 
and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Scroll of the Twelve. Mm-hmm. That was about 200 B.C. Huh. Now, interestingly, the book of Psalms doesn't come along till the very end of the first century A.D. Hmm. Because the third part, which is called the writings, yeah. wasn't done until then. Wow. And this was, de- this was you know, the, the scrolls helped yes. to decide that. Okay. But this meant, you know, that, that uh, at the, even, uh, you know, 50 years or 80 years after the time of Jesus, the, the uh, Hebrew scriptures weren't yet finished. Wow. So, uh, you know, the latest of the, of the uh, New Testament books is, of course, uh, the Gospel of John, which comes about, oh, the year 10, 20 or something like that. Yeah. But uh, the, Christ, the Christians kept on adding and interpreting as they went along. The most notorious is Matthew, who yeah. uses theological imagination to change things. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because who was, this is another huge topic, but historical Jesus to the best that we can know based upon the our knowledge. Of Mark. Okay. Because and who was Jesus? I mean, Jesus was, a, was he an actual rabbi? He wasn't the, a rabbi. Okay, so who was he? I mean, well, no, he, he was, was a carpenter, free, he was right? A free, no, he was a freelance teacher. Okay. And uh, the earliest gospel is the gospel according to Mark. Yeah. Now, Mark didn't please the Apostle Paul. Paul knew no stories about Jesus at all. And he was, he didn't like, Mark wasn't faithful enough. So Mark gave up on, uh, uh, left him and went with Peter. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Peter, for some reason, traveled to Rome. So did Paul. Mm-hmm. But he traveled to Rome uh, to kind of give courage to the the Christians there, yeah, because they were being persecuted by this madman named Nero, mm-hmm. and uh, the stories in Mark's uh, Mark was Peter's companion, mm-hmm. so he heard the stories from Peter, mm-hmm. and of course Peter didn't meet Jesus till Jesus' adult years, so nothing. There are yeah. no stories earlier than that. Okay. But the earliest account. Now, uh, I have a good story from one of my students. You always learn a lot from students. Yes. They had read, they had read the Gospel of Mark as their assignment. And I said, what did you think? And one brave student said, Jesus really had an attitude. I said, you're right. Yeah. Oh, men of little faith. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and Peter is, you can find the places where Peter was embarrassed again and again and again. And there are things in Mark's gospel that only Peter could know and know painfully. <laughs> so, so we think if we're really to know the historical Jesus. The closest we can come is the gospel to Mark. Okay. Because there really are no other primary well, sources, are there or are there? Luke, oh, Jesus. Is, Luke is pretty accurate. Okay. Now, Luke, starting at chapter 16, 
of the book of Acts, Luke was traveling with Paul and keeping a journal. And every time you hit the word we, we traveled from here to there, mm-hmm. we, 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 that's, that's Luke's journal. Okay. Well, both, according to tradition, both Peter and Paul were put to death in Rome. Mm-hmm. Now, Luke, who was by nature a journalist, wanted mm-hmm. to know more. So he decided to go to uh, the surviving Christians who would be in the northern Galilee and the Jordan Valley mm-hmm. and see if he could get more stories. Mm-hmm. And that's why in Luke's Gospel there are nine chapters that were only known by Luke and they happened mostly in the Jordan Valley. Wow. So Luke located people who knew the stories from that time. Yeah. And so Luke is remarkably accurate. Huh. And the fact that, that uh, you know, he found these stories, the famous gospel of, you know, the shepherds at night and so forth, that's in Luke's gospel. Hmm. He found someone who remembered that. Wow. And I think it's, what, what was it? You know, of course, the Christians talk about, well, the reason why Jesus was Jesus is because he rose from the dead and he, you know. Well, that was, what was it about the teacher, Jesus, that ignited the passions of, okay, of the actual followers document. that he taught? The great German scholars of the middle of the 19th century discovered uh, the secret writings of somebody whose name they weren't known. So they, they call this document the Quella. Hmm. The source. And it was someone writing down things that Jesus taught. Hmm. Now Matthew used it in a, in a, a one way. Mm-hmm. For example, he created the story of the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of real gems, mm-hmm. and two other chapters. I can, mm-hmm. you know, mostly toward the late, verse chapter 18. Yeah. But Luke treated it differently. Luke decided to turn it into a story. Mm-hmm. And so Luke's gospel is the way a journalist would write. Hmm. And Matthew's gospel is the way a Jewish theologian would write, well, a Jewish Christian theologian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, maybe you remember, you didn't take the New Testament course. I took the Bible. Yes, okay, yeah. Well, in the 18th chapter of, of oh, you remember when when Mark's gospel ends, yeah. just drops it like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, Matthew decides to, to uh, enlarge upon it. Mm-hmm. And when you read the story of uh, Resurrection Morning in Mark, yeah. it's just mysterious. You read it in Matthew and there are earthquakes and there's... You know, angels, it's really dressed up. Yeah. It's really theatrical. Yeah. So I, I like to think of Matthew's gospel as, as uh, religious theatrics. And Paul, when you think about Christianity, we should almost call it Paulianity because really doesn't it, isn't Paul really the one that shapes and forms what For, we know as Christianity? And he, Very and, much so. And when does he... When does he exist 
in relation to the death of Christ. There's a time period afterwards. After, yeah, yeah. So afterwards. he's after the fact. Now, he's really he, shaping uh, the, the, the he religion. He grew up in Tarsus, okay. where you had to know Greek, but he was also learning Hebrew, and so his parents sent, down, sent him down to Jerusalem to find a teacher. And his teacher was Gamaliel, which means God's camel. <laughs> and so that's where he learned his Hebrew and uh, you know, has learned to be a Hebrew scholar, and that's where he uh, watched the uh, uh, stoning to death of a guy named Stephen, and and uh, he was he was apparently a, a a nuisance to have around. So they sent him to Damascus to uh, you know stop Christianity there. And that's, that's where he, he was. Saul. This is Saul. Yeah. Uh, and. Now, the reason he's called Paul, he earned that name back in his hometown because Saul is the great towering giant. Yeah. Paul means the little guy. Oh, wow, that's good. You know, he, he earned a name from, the, from his playmates who were mostly probably not Jewish. Yeah. Uh, meaning Paul is the little guy. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. And so he really shapes it. Um, and so you, you have this incredible, maybe we'll just wait until then. So we're getting into all these wonderful, and, and that's really one of my first memories of you, is, is really making the Bible come alive for people and helping us to understand. And so you, you get a PhD in, in Near Eastern uh, religion and studies you, from, from Harvard. You then make your way back to Luther College. What yeah. year was that, and what was the de well, you, I in the religion from department? Luther in the class of fifty-three. Three. You go to Harvard. When then, did you graduate from Harvard? Uh, With its time in the seminary in six, Minneapolis. Six, six, 1963. Okay. Yeah. So then you make your way back to Luther. What year? That year. Okay. So you're back in 1963. I got a phone call from. The, you know, the invincible Pip Qualley, who oh, had been Pip. following me. Yeah. And he's... And Pip, I, I, Susie doesn't like it when I swear on podcasts, but he was kind of a badass. I mean, Pip Qualley, I oh, mean, he was... was style. Oh, my goodness. Like, he's a legend. He's like a real life... Oh, yes, yes. And I remember losing my temper at him. Oh, really? Why? When we came to class and we weren't prepared, and I... Slammed my book on the table and I said, "You don't know how hard we worked and how much we prepared." <laughs> and he backed up. Oh, I love it. And, and Pip, for our Luther listeners, was a legend of Luther. Oh yes, College. he was a legend. He was also a football coach. And wasn't he also um, involved in some of the excavations in King Tut's tomb or something like that in, in yeah, Egypt? He, well, he he was he a went, classics guy. He he went. He knew to, Greek and ancient. When Greek. he was at the University of Michigan. Yeah. Uh, he went to a place called Luxor doing research. Yeah. And he became ill. And so they sent him to see a doctor, and the doctor, uh, uh, after he treated him, he found out he was a, you know, he was an archaeologist, and the doctor said, I have a bunch of old coins I'll give you. Mm-hmm. He gave him about $20,000 worth of old coins. Oh, wow. Which Luther College now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And so, so Pip is this legend. Was he the one that got you back to Luther? Or who who, who was, actually got Pip. you? So yeah, Pip I called had, you. I had six offers. One was from Indonesia. And uh, my uh, professor said, uh, my mentor said, don't go there. They just want a Harvard gown. <laughs> Nomenson University. Yeah. 
Well, anyway, Pip Qualley knew how to operate. He said, uh, we want you back at Luther. And uh, um, I'll give you two weeks to respond. And uh, I thought, well, we didn't have a car. I had to borrow. We lost three cars in three years at Luther. Wow. At, at, in Boston. Yeah. Traffic in Boston just horrendous. Yeah. And so I already had to borrow money to buy a car. Yeah. And I said, uh, I'm going to need money to move my, I have a trailer home. And I'm going to need money to move that. I don't have it. We'll give you $500. Just like that, you know. Hmm. That's the way he was. He was impetuous. Yeah. But now how he discovered my talents was very interesting. Huh, this is Pep. I wanted to, I, I was put, you know, I had to put four years into three and a quarter. Yeah. To graduate. From Harvard or Luther? From Luther College. Okay, yeah. And I remember staying up all night before the final exam uh, in Greek. And I sat in the bathtub to keep myself awake. I came to the test, which was early in the morning, 8 o'clock. My brain wouldn't work. Yeah. So I handed in a blank paper. Wow. And Qualley said, well... I should flunk you, but I'll just give you a D. That took my grade point average way down. Yeah. Well, he kind of wondered how. What happened? He didn't understand. Because I was probably one of his two or three top. Will Bungie was another great student. Yeah. There were about three of us who were really the top of the class. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, but I got <clears throat> my personal salvation when I went to uh, to Luther Seminary and we had a a price as a professor old yeah. style he would walk into class late and we were all supposed to stand up yeah <laughs> Herman Preuss <laughs> who's a big name at Luther College oh yes Herman Preuss yeah anyway he had us seated we were all in certain rows and the first three students were St. Olaf grads, and I was number four. Hmm. And he, he turned to the first one, he said, read the text in Greek. It was a letter to the Romans. Couldn't do it. Second one, couldn't do it. Third one, couldn't do it. I did it brilliantly. Wow. I can recite the Lord's Prayer in Greek. Could you do that right now in Greek? Could in you just Greek? do it? Yeah. This is the way it is in Matthew. Pater Hemon, who went to a silver noise. I'll give a state to Toman or two. Can you say to Tothelabasu, also, no, no, See now. Right for tomorrow. Okay, I lost it. That's okay. Bed for tomorrow, give us today. Oh, may Asa, and then comes May Asa Nakas, Emas, Ospoma, Espemas, Ron, Alarisa, Hemas, Apotabari, lead us not in temptation, but with it. Tonarton, Emon, Tonapius, and those Hemin Semeran. 
Oh. Right for tomorrow, give us today. And then I would explain. I love it, I love it people. That's uh, awesome. It's, it's because that. it has to be bread for tomorrow because it was sourdough and you had to send let it rise overnight. That's why bread for tomorrow give us today. <laughs> but but I think, though, what we're demonstrating, this is the magic of why I loved your class so much. Because he- here's one of the reasons so many people rebel against religion. Yeah. For me, it was not a question of me not believing in God. It was the boredom. There are so many people. It's like the high school history teacher that can't oh. teach history. How people can think religion. Rob Bell, who's this great... Um, pastor in western michigan he has this belief that sermons should never be boring and so he's gotten into the the hebrew and the ritual and you as a professor i think as as all of us luther graduates some of our best moments you would almost get i remember moments simon when it was almost like we were in a collective trance like because you had such a (laughs) meditative way that you could make the text come alive so just share how you how you got there uh, i had Groups of fifteen. Yes. On on Thursdays, four four groups of fifteen. Yeah. And that's when people could ask questions. Yes. Now, I always told myself, I'm going to learn more from my students. Yes. Than I can teach them. And did that lead to, you would do? I remember for Bible. I've always said that this was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. You could do four projects for this class. And if you wanted to, you could write a paper. Yeah. And so I remember I was like, yeah, I was a little bit. I didn't I didn't really want to experiment. So but people could do anything. All, all basically you said it had to be about the Bible and you'd give us a focus. Yeah. But then you could do anything. You could do a play, you, you could do a I reading. Would, I had a rating system of uh, one through, uh, well, four through twelve. I wouldn't give any if it, if it was going to be a D, I'd call a student in and give him a chance to read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, 12 was a, an A+, plus, but I would rate it, you know, up to yeah. 11. And uh, I rarely gave the 12. Yeah. My own daughter was so darn sharp. She's coming tonight. Oh, good. She got a 12. Wow. And she was so good, she got a totally free ride to Northwestern University. Wow, wow. With two hundred dollars extra money for buying books and things. Wow! Yeah. But you know, and I, I keep getting reminders of this and letters from students about that because the work that people pre- they would do the creativity yeah. that that would unleash. I, I remember we would see people that would do a Dead Sea Scroll. They they would they would make it look like that, or they would do a yeah. panorama of the Middle East. They would do an ancient map. Well, one of my favorites. I did the Apostle Paul I, I, and Law and Romans. Like I, I yeah. yeah. Do you remember that? No, but that well, that was a and so. Thing. But yeah, so we would it would just inspired creativity. I thought that was such a great thing. Remember the girl who was blind. I don't know if she was in my class. No, yeah. she wasn't. Yeah. I think of her name. She married a blind Norwegian. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was lecturing, and I was trying to... Donna Hinch was her name. I think I Donna, did know Donna, yeah. Donna Hinch. Uh, she, uh, I, I went up to her, and I said, Now, give me your hand. Yeah. I said, uh, this is the... I can't remember how I did. Yeah. 
this is the Mediterranean Sea, and over, you know, I, yeah. I located on her hand yeah. where things were. Yeah. And one boy was so moved by this that he created a, 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 a raised map for her. Wow. And it was about this big. Wow. So that she could feel her way. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the things with the liberal arts is people always sort of wonder, gosh, yeah. as we become increasingly more technologized society, what, what does the role of liberal, where, is it relevant? And I think it is because we'll always need to be able to tell stories about who we are yeah. and to reimagine reality in intersectional ways and in interdimensional ways. And I think that's what we do in the liberal arts is that we have all, you know, the dance and the music and the yeah. art and the philosophy, now, which here, was brought here, together here's in your a, class. A, a, a story that was true at least 10 times. Yeah. A boy, I was always a boy, would come in uh, and say, well, I have a hard time. Do you believe in miracles? And I would typically say, well, what else is there? Mm -hmm. Life is a miracle. Yes. I don't know of anything that isn't a miracle. Yeah. Oh. And then I might say, say I do. Do you believe in breathing? Oh, then you believe in life, don't you? Mm -hmm. Maybe you believe in a miracle if you believe in life. Yeah. And I would illustrate this way, just to make them think. Yes. Yes. Because we don't understand most of what's going on in the world. Totally. And yeah. it's been going on forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Now, I have fond memories of the old Norwegian synod liturgy. Mm -hmm. And it always ended with a prayer in which the old minister would say, world without end amen wow boy that stuck with me yeah world without end amen well it is without end or beginning and it's incredibly mysterious and it, the, the secret is in the little book of ecclesiastes that you know there's no such thing as the beginning or the end yeah there's only something we can't understand, and it's called forever. Yeah. And, you know, we said, where did it start? The Big Bang? Well, what was before the Big Bang? Yeah. Oh. We don't know. We don't understand the concept of forever. And we have our senses and our perceptions. Yeah. And, you know, and there is no beginning or end, and that's a thought we can't think. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the lines in Ecclesiastes. We have to, we can't think the thoughts that talk about God. But we're here in the moment experiencing life sure. as it is, as a gift to and us then, as we experience it. And that's all we really know. And, and we're you know, all going to be dead soon. We always find something new. Yes. All I have to do is watch the deer out and back. Yes. And I find that when I look out there, I'm never bored. Yes, exactly. When I listen to lectures that are often on the television, I get bored. Yeah, exactly. When people try to formulate something, you know, real humility is when you start to learn how stupid you are. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's two things I remember. One, you said there's two types of knowledge. 
one who thinks that they've climbed up to the mountain and have gotten everything that there is to know, mm -hmm. and the other that gets to the top and sees this vast yes. mountain range. And it just makes us realize how much more there is to know. Yeah, and you know, and you know, to, to realize over and over again, and this is the journey that I have made from being an egotistical high schooler. Yeah. We, you know, when we're young and smart, we're full of ego. Yeah. And you have to have it removed from you by circumstances beyond your control. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's why I mentioned that I'm really into the Stoics and Epictetus and the Enchiridion. Oh, yeah. His very first line is, focus on what you can control, ignore what you can't. Yeah. And if people can remember that one thing, you know, they think about politics, can we really control what happens in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Well, we can vote, but for the most part, what can we control? Our relationships, our attitudes, and our health to some degree? gets controlled in ways we, you know, when something happened that we didn't expect, uh, I had a terrible car accident in which my youngest child was yeah. killed on the road. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and what I remember is that the baby had a premonition. Yeah. As though something was going to happen. And the kids were in the back, back of a station yeah. wagon. Yeah. And he wanted to come to mommy. And she said, oh no, I'm too tired. Yeah. And then, bingo. Wow. Well, mysteries are good for us. Yeah. Because they... Uh, you know, one of my favorite lines is in an old play in which uh, life goes on and the old gentleman in a German accent says, Oh, yeah, we grow too soon old and too late smart. <laughs> I know. And I think, you know, me being in the middle age of my life, one of the things I think that makes middle age so powerful is that you still have, to some degree, the youth of, of you know, being a younger person but you see the horizon. Yeah. And you see the horizon of the end of your life. And I think it really does make you want to seize the moment. And I think that's why Susie and I, my sister, have talked about, gosh, we have to talk to Simon. We have to talk to Simon. Yeah. And I'm so glad you made the opportunity to do this. Yeah. You're, you're going to show a, a now, picture. Now, I always have lived multiple lives. Yeah. I paint pictures. That's a painting that you did? Yeah. Oh my gosh! This is with oils. Where where is that? And, and so for friends, he's showing me a a, a painting. It was in Canada. Is it near Banff or? Yeah, um, around there. Wow. And I've got all sorts of artwork here. Oh my gosh! Now, that is where did you learn how to paint? I started when I was. Wow. In high school. Wow. <laughs> anyway. It is breathtakingly beautiful. I I uh, the reason. We do art is to express ourselves. Yes. Now, here's one of my best sketches. I did this with green ink while I was sitting in a canoe. And where is that? So, friends, It's on the south side of Fishhook Island in the middle of a, a lake in northern Minnesota, uh, where Wilderness Canoe Base is. Wow. So it's near the, probably near Ely, Minnesota then. Well, no, way north of that. Oh, way north of, yeah, so at in the, the Quetico. End of the, the Gunflint Trail. Seagull Lake. Seagull Lake. Yeah. 
And so I... It's this beautiful, tranquil scene. And I just used one pencil. Oh, my gosh. And did you do this one here? Is, there's no, that's another, a photograph. That's a photograph. That's from the same place, but... And did you... Okay. Oh, wow, yeah, this is, this is beautiful. And, you know, and I, love, I love to do paintings and any kind of work, any kind of... And you do sculptor t sculpture, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, this one here. It's a mystery, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, well, I like to... I like to do things that emphasize the mystery, the mysterious. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that, and that's like a stone or something. Yeah, it's. Wow. And I, 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 uh, I carved it out. It's soft. It's you know pumice. Yeah. And then I uh, made cement out of the uh, out of the uh, grains of pumice and. Put some glue in and plunk this down. Yeah, no, it's 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 beautiful. But I think it's generally true that we do art because it's so darn much fun. Yeah, and we're doing it for our own sake, mostly. Yeah, and if somebody likes it, fine. Yeah, exactly. It's very therapeutic. But but you know, it's it's capturing a moment in which you. Uh, kind of understood something yeah now sometimes it's kind of understood yeah and i have well this is one of my favorites this was down in the sangre de cristo mountains and that's another sculpture that you did yeah but i didn't have to do much the bird was already there wow and then this so one, you sculpted the bird i didn't have to do it oh and, you know i didn't have to do, i don't think i i had to do a little bit of work here wow but now here's one that I did together with my son, Randall. Wow. We don't know what it is, but together we created this fantasy hmm. and decided to put a put one stone there. And uh, it's just a fantasy. You know, I love it. And, you know, isn't that you talked about growing older? Uh -huh. Kids have this incredible gift of creativity. Oh, sure. And imagination. And there's something about, and I don't know whether it's the pain of adulthood or whatever, but why is it that so many adults put on these layer upon layer upon layer until they finally become so stiff that it's almost like they've lost what the purpose of living of is, as opposed to you're showing me this okay, incredible no. creativity. I, took I love a it. Of course, one summer up at. Uh, North Bear Creek, and one of the teachers was Doug Eckhart. Oh, I love Doug. Doug agreed with me once that this was his best painting. It was watercolor. Wow. And I said, what's nice about it is the empty spaces. Yes. You didn't finish it. Yeah, exactly. And, so you know, it, it's just... And I like things that aren't finished. And I got a wonderful compliment once from an English teacher. Mm -hmm. Who was the lady who had uh, one arm? I don't know if I remember her. She may have not been there when I was there. Yeah, anyway, she was a wonderful teacher. She taught English. And you know, now that you say that, Simon, I, I remember as your lecturing style, sometimes I remember not only what you said, but the pause to allow people in the silence oh, yes, the pause is important. to allow people to absorb and oh, yes, to that's very very important yeah
we don't all hear the same. Yeah. Our life experiences. Now, one day when I was coming back from chapel, she was walking with me, and she said, you never finish your chapel talks, do you? Huh. I said, you're right. Huh. That's for you to do. Yeah, exactly. I love it. I love it. Wow. So we've almost talked an hour, and it seems like two minutes. And I did want to cover, though, I did want to cover um, your, your course on Judaism and, okay. and, and Ellie Wiesel and, and that piece of it. And then I'm hoping after we do that, we can close with Shalom Shavarim. Oh, yeah. So tell oh. me about the Judaism course and what it was like teaching a course on Judaism to a predominantly yeah. Lutheran okay. student. Okay, I went to a special two-week uh, seminar down in Vanderbilt University. Mm-hmm where uh, it was, the whole thing was to help non-Jewish people develop a course in Judaism. Mm -hmm. And our teachers were all Jewish. And uh, mine was voted the best one because I said, all assignments should be in books written by Jewish people. I don't want to interpret Judaism. Yes. I want the students to hear only experts. Mm-hmm. So all assignments are, you know, whether it's a film, and I, I showed a film in one often, I want it to be by Jewish people speaking for themselves. Yeah. Which is like conversing with a person and trying to figure out this guy who's yeah. different, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so... Uh, the whole class voted that mine was the, going to be the most effective. Wow. Later on, I taught the first course in, in Islam, three years in a row. Mm-hmm. I used the same rule. Mm-hmm. All readings have to be by Muslims. Mm-hmm. And the basic interpretation of the history was by a, cre- a book created by Aramco. That's Arabian-American oil company. Mm. <laughs> huh. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know... <clears throat> so even even the interpretation of the the, the basic outline of the of the uh, uh, history was by by uh, Muslim people, hmm. and wh- when I uh, wrote to uh, the Ramco headquarters down in Texas, and uh, I said, "Can I have permission to make copies of this?" and they said, "How many copies do you need?" Hmm. They sent me more than enough copies for the whole class. Wow, that's amazing. A free textbook. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And, and in Judaism, did you have a moment where you said, you know, you obviously had the background in Semitic languages, but what was sort of the impetus for you to become such a Jewish-interested scholar? Well, in my work in archaeology, I got to intimately know six survivors of the Holocaust. Wow. Now I'll tell you the most painful one. We had a woman there who couldn't talk very well. Mm-hmm. Her husband, Maria was her name. Her husband uh, was named Salmon. Uh, they got married, they both survived. And uh, she wanted to tell me a story. Mm-hmm. The story was this, that when she was a teenager, she came to America to to be a nanny in a Jewish home. Mm-hmm. 
And she was here for maybe a whole year, and she went back. And then she was taken to the death camps. But because she was pretty, the uh, Nazis decided to use her for sexual satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And because she resisted, they cut off her tongue. Oh my gosh. And, and I was speaking Hebrew with her, modern Hebrew, but the tolerable kind. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, a sound one said, she's trying to tell you, saying, once I was beautiful. And I said to her, no, now you are much more beautiful. Oh my God, Lila. And the two of them hugged me. Now the next year, yeah. I took the family along. My oldest, my youngest son was six years old, mm -hmm. and Rita was there. And we came there, and I introduced my wife, and Rita got a two-person hug from the two of them, and mm. <laughs> didn't understand wow. why. And then when we left, uh, we asked if she would like something from America. Now Jewish women have to wear a wig; it's just part of the custom, you know. Yeah. And she would like a wig from America. Mm -hmm. So when we got, arrived here, and we arrived uh, in Rochester, Minnesota, mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember who met us, but we went to a wig shop. Mm. And we bought a wig for her and mailed it to her wow. in Israel. And so you incorporated this into a lot of your work, and including you featured... Eli Wiesel, one yeah. of the great writers about his experiences in the Holocaust. Yeah. And he came to the Luther campus, campus, so I was wondering whether you could share a little bit about Eli Wiesel, who, who he is, and how he got to Luther campus. Okay. Eli Wiesel, I had first heard him when I went up to St. Olaf College. And he lectured up there. It was the two years before. And uh, there he was introduced to... Uh, the uh, guy in charge of the Norwegian language department, uh, I can't think of his name now. It'll probably come to me. And they had a conversation. And uh, he, he, he said, I, was, I came to the same camp as you because about, oh my, a huge number, something like 10,000 Norwegians were sent to this camp. Hmm because the Norwegians caused the Germans so much trouble. <laughs> I, I guess I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of, I know that there was the heavy water attack, but I didn't know that uh -huh. there was, but I didn't know that there was, so there's quite a bit of rubble on that. That would be another topic, yeah. Yeah. Well, so he I, was put to a camp, a Norwegian was. Yes. Okay. These Norwegians came in, and Wiesel said, yes, you earned your way in. We didn't have a choice. Wow. Wow. And he wrote, and you, and we, we read his book, I think, Night, yeah. in, in the Judaism course. Yeah. And then we also did Kayim Potak, My Name is Af Asher Lev. Yeah, and those, those are good books. Oh, my gosh, now, yeah. Eli Wiesel's real name was Eliezer Wiesel. Mm -hmm. But uh, when he was released from the camps, he went to France, and Wiesel became Wiesel. Hmm. And that's where he wrote Night, Day and Dawn, I think the, the, yeah. the three. 
Well, the other book that I want to read that I have not that's always recommended by people is Theodore Frankel's book. Oh, yes, Victor Frankel. Uh, or Victor, yeah, Victor Frankel. Yeah. And it, Man's Life, Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. Have you read that book? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. More I than want, once. I want to read that book. I don't know what I did with my copy, though. I don't have it right now. Her book's awesome. I, I, I'm yeah, addicted to and books. He met over in, in Russia uh, a German who had worked at the camps who turned around and changed and became a good person. Wow. Wow. I might have that. Wow. The, the Victor Frankl? Yep. So Simon was not able to find Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, but he is going to share me with me with us a gift that he got from Ailey Wiesel directly, which I think is really cool. Because Ailey just died not that long ago, right? Huh? Ailey Wiesel, oh my gosh, this is a, a gift. This is his signature in Hebrew. Okay, so this is a gift from Ailey Wiesel to Richard Simon Hansen. And what's the title of the book, Simon? The Testament. The Testament no. by Eli Wiesel. And could you read what? Could you read in Hebrew what it was said, and then uh, translate it for us? So this is from Eli to Richard Simon Hansen. Simon Hansen. And then it just, and then it just gives the date, and then, oh. and then his signature. Uh, very abbreviated. Eli Wiesel. Okay, backwards. Cool. But he's writing in... And the second book is The Madness of God God. by Elie Wiesel. And this is a book that you got from him? Yeah, and here again is his signature. Here he wrote his signature in English. Okay. Elie Wiesel. Wow, that is so awesome. And he came to Luther College campus at your invitation. Um, Yep. Wow, I love it. Well, wow, this has been... Such an honor to talk to you. I, I think in terms of, you know, you think of the Luther faculty, there are so many rock stars, so many wonderful people, so many people that formed us. I think of one thing that you had said. There was one time where you did one of your pauses and you said, forgiveness is not for those who are forgiven, but for the person who is forgiving, to let go. Yeah. And it was yeah. so powerful, and I've always remembered that. Yeah, that's, that's again and again true. Yeah. You know, it's very, and there are some powerful stories I've seen on television of yeah. people who held their anger until they thought, I have to forgive. Yes. I had to ponder that one a long time. Yeah. And I was trying to, you know, understand this crazy, crazy man, Donald Trump. Yeah. Now, because he never made any mistakes. Yeah, to him. <laughs> yeah. You see, what if you have never made any mistakes? Yeah. Can you really be human without making mistakes? Yeah. Don't you think there are just some deep wounds there? Setting aside his political ideology, well, he has not received forgiveness. And I think in terms of like the Christian he message, he in, can't in confess. One of the stories of Jesus, yeah. uh, there's a, 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 an encounter, I think it's in Luke's Gospel, yeah. where uh, he, he has... A woman has come in, he's been examined by the experts. Yeah. And this woman comes in uh, and weeps at his feet and kisses his feet. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, and they said, well, and they're, they're muttering, well, if he knew what kind of a woman this was, he wouldn't let her do this. Mm-hmm. And he, he says something like, 
I came to your door. You gave me no kiss, which is mm-hmm. custom. Mm-hmm. You did not offer me oil for my head, and you did not offer to wash my feet. Mm-hmm. All of these things she has done. Yeah. And then the, the line is, uh, basically, those who have done no wrong don't need forgiveness. Wow. It's those who have sinned. Yeah. Which I always, I love that because <clears throat> so often when people critique Christianity, like, oh, there are these sinners and there's all this conflict in the world. I'm like, yeah, you're right. We're all incredibly flawed <laughs> and we all make tons of mistakes. Yeah. But isn't it good news that, that we have a religious practice, which is a lot of yeah. things where we confess and we are forgiven. We are liberated. Yeah. We're washed clean, the water. I mean, that is such a wonderful, powerful metaphor. And it's like, yeah, no, absolutely, you're right. We're all a bunch of total losers. And we're all a bunch of total sinners. And we take accountability for it, but we go and we worship together and we're freed. We're liberated. We're forgiven. That's good news. Now, I'll tell you a story I often use over at the nursing home. Yeah. You know, did you ever find out you're never too old to do something dumb? Yeah, that's right. Oh. Exactly. That's true. We never get too old. But what's good about doing something dumb? Well, when I was fairly young, I found a, a verse in the first, third, first letter of John. It says, if your conscience condemns you, uh, remember that God is greater than your conscience. Yeah. God invented you. You're his fault. <laughs> that is great. I love it. You know, and... We're never too old to do something dumb. Yeah. Or to experience moments of grace and forgiveness and oh, transformation, yeah. and no matter what to. age we are. And that little verse says, God can forgive you. Why can't you? Yeah. No, oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so what an awesome hour. And I was hoping that we could conclude with Shalom Chavarim, which Shalom is... Shalom Chavarim, Shalom Chavarim. Shalom, shalom. Lehit ra'od, lehit ra'od. Shalom, shalom. Peace upon you, brethren, until we meet again. Shalom, chaverim, shalom, chaverim. Shalom, shalom. Lehit and in Arabic, Shalom Aleikum is Assalam Aleikum. Yeah, Assalam Aleikum, exactly. Yeah, I've gotten to know a lot of the Sudanese. Community. We have a young lady, well, she's getting older now, works at the courthouse. Yeah. And she's a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And Sometimes she sees me when I'm there. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, Sabah al ya Sayyidati. <laughs> and she replies, Sabah al-Nur. <laughs> Where's you she know? from in air? In, I don't, oh. I have never found out. Yeah. But, uh, and whatever, why ever she got a job here. Did you speak Arabic too? Oh, I had to. Oh, okay. Whatever language, wherever I lived, I had to learn the language. 
Yeah. Well or badly? <laughs> One of the two. Oh, that's great. Well, until we meet again, I am so honored. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, friends of the Rocky Cast, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, Until next time on the Rocky Cast.